I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Australian architect Richard Hassel, co-founder of Singapore-based architecture practice, WOHA. Richard, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Susie. Great to see you. Yeah, and you. What a year it's been. Yeah, it's been a, an experience, I think, that we're always going to remember. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually kind of want to go back to the beginnings of your time here in Singapore. Because you're originally from Perth, right? That's correct, yes. And if I'm getting my dates right, you moved here in 1989. Is that correct? Yes, you okay. are correct. Right at the end, it was in December 1989. Okay. Yeah. So you have an anniversary coming up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know what your first impressions of Singapore were when you first arrived. Mm, well, I actually, because the reason I came here actually was I had um, family here, my aunt and uncle. So I had come up uh, since the 70s um, on holidays. Uh, so I was familiar with it as a, as a place over time. Um, but in the late 80s it was maybe in a sort of transition period between its kind of characters I think um, so it was they just finished the MRT line so it was just starting to sort of develop as a um, feeling a bit more like a big city um, and uh, I remember the um, Raffles City the Iron Pay Tower had, had just gone up uh, finished a, the year before, I think. So it was it was really transitioning um, into feeling quite like a world city, but a bit corporate, and a lot of things were still not very sophisticated, I would say. Um, while I think sort of since that time it's grown into a completely new personality, which is sort of the global world city of the future. Um, and yeah, so I, it was interesting to see it change over the, the 30 years that I've been here. Mm, yeah, I bet. Um, so I'd actually really love to have you describe what, what those changes are in the, the urban and natural landscape and obviously within the infrastructure as well, as you've sort of just alluded to. How, mm. how would you describe them? <laughs> I think as a, well, as a design practitioner, sort of looking at the physical infrastructure of the city, at that point there, were, uh, there was a process of engaging um, very famous world architects to design some signature projects. And I would say the local design industry was quite demoralised. Uh, it was, um, there was an attitude that, you know, developers were all about the budget and you just had to do what they said and it was design wasn't really um, uh, respected or valued um, and uh, that has changed a lot I think so a local design culture has has emerged and I think as a country that has a general understanding of design as adding a lot of value that that attitude has 
has spread, I think, into, um, you know, even quite uh, unsophisticated players in the market would still see design as a, as a core value. So I think that's that's been a really big change and it's quite obvious in the, um, the quality of uh, projects generally. Yeah, so I'd say when I first came, there was like, you know, 2% interesting projects and now you know it's probably quite high i think like uh, 40 or 50 percent of projects have have ambitions to do something hmm. yeah that's interesting i was actually just chatting with somebody over lunch about this how that wave kind of came in that it was very much about you know bringing in the the, the big brand names i suppose and now more towards hopefully supporting a local design culture and supporting design from here so, yeah, it's nice to hear you say that as well. But I think you're in a kind of a unique situation somewhat with you and Mum Sum since you've founded Woha and the amount of work that you've done in, in the city. It's not that common, I would suggest, that architects get to build in the city that they live in and perhaps to the gr degree that you two have. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you're walking around or driving around or getting around the city looking at all of these structures that you've participated in creating, is, is it just sort of a reminder of things that you <laughs> want to change or does it, does it give you a good feeling? Ah, uh, well, both, well, all kinds of feelings, I think, because they're very, um, I think a, a construction project's a very complex thing um, and they go for a very long time. So they're, I think, where other people tend to see them as like a, an object or a product that's just been placed there in the city. Uh, when you work on them, often it's eight or ten years of your life. Um, so it's really bound up in your whole changing um, life story. Uh, and you see it very much as a process and not, not a finite object. Um, and then, of course, after you finish, they continue to... Um, age or be like uh, <laughs> compromised by uh, <laughs> insensitive additions or alterations uh, and so uh, it's really yeah they just become part of your life a bit like a sort of family member you know where you might see some some um, auntie who's now needs to walk using a walking frame but you don't <laughs> you just uh, accept it as uh, the passage of time and things going on but I mean it is very nice to to see them in the city and to feel like um, uh, you have in some way um, made an impact on the built environment and the, the built culture of the city and uh, I mean I think we've been fortunate to be able to do projects which um, I think many people enjoy and we get feedback and that's really the nicest part when when people tell you they love visiting the building or you know they live in it and it's really uh, made a difference to their daily life uh, I think like with Kampong Admiralty we had some stories which honestly sort of brought a tear <laughs> a tear to our eye because it's uh, it, it, it's really um, quite a privilege, I think, to be given um, the opportunity to affect the environment that other people have no real influence over, I think. Mm. And so that's a big responsibility. To, so to hear that it turned out well 
uh, is really moving, actually. Mm. Yeah, I always feel like, I mean, there's a couple of buildings that you've designed that I feel like are very much like a marker of Singapore and whenever I see them, it's like a, a reminder, just in case I forgot, you know, all right, I'm in Singapore now and I think the Park Royal on Pickering is definitely one of those that if I've sort of lost myself in a moment in a taxi and I look up, I'm like, oh, I, I know where I am now, you know, it's it's a really nice reminder of Oh, location. that's nice. Actually, it yeah. was in a Tiger Beer commercial I saw just the oh, other really? day. So <laughs> it seems to be entering the, the visual culture a bit like that yeah. for everybody. Isn't that interesting? So with what you have already accomplished here, are there any other ambitions of any other types of um, projects or infrastructure that you both are still aspiring to do, or as a company, I should say, because obviously it's not just you and Munsum anymore. You've got quite the team behind you. Yes, we have a fantastic team, and many people have been with us for uh, decades now, so it it really is uh, um, in some ways a bit like an institution. but I think I think what we've been really interested in recently is is master plans. I think at, at a building level, um, we've in some ways um, uh, built our thesis in terms of what we think buildings can be doing. But they're really only like prototypes for um, a bigger vision of how cities might work, and so to be able to master plan and then build uh, build the master plan or work with others to get it uh, assembled and I think to show how a city could perform um, many more things and perform them much better uh, that's that's our ambition now mm-hmm. um, and we are we're in our um, in Pongol where we have master planned an area there and we're doing SIT campus and Pongol digital district so we are managing to implement uh, a fragment of our self-sufficient city concept, which is very exciting, and uh, also working on some other large master plans too. So, yeah, that's interesting. Do you think there is actually that much more that you can do in a city the size of Singapore, or have you got your sights set further afield, perhaps where there is, you know, I don't want to put names into your mouth, but countries or cities where there may be more space to leave a mark? Um, well, I think... We, when we published our book, Garden City Megacity, it was a book of strategies and it was directed at policy makers um, and planners uh, because we thought it was, none of our ideas are worth anything if just Woha does them. So it needs a sort of a, uh, a collective effort and a common understanding uh, to, to achieve what we want to achieve. So whether we do it overseas or other people do it overseas, uh, we're not that worried. Um, we're doing, we've, for the last 20 years, we've about 50% of our work has been outside Singapore anyway. But I think China, obviously, uh, with this urbanisation project still ongoing, uh, is an opportunity to perhaps um, build a, a larger version um, and... But I think many, um, there's uh, everywhere in the world I think can benefit from it. And I think in some ways it'd be nice to build uh, enough to make it work really well. And then I think it's also possible to to work these ideas back into existing cities and fabrics. Um, but Singapore's still offering us uh, opportunities to do that <laughs> with its... Uh, 
continuous renewal uh, of um, of older areas, uh, and so I think we're we're not short of opportunities to be able to do it. Mm, that's really interesting. And so obviously, so much of your work revolves around your approach to sustainability and and how holistic that is incorporated into a building or whether it be a town or a city. Uh, I'd love to hear how much you think people's attitudes, whether it be the general public or even clients or potential clients or even other designers, how that their attitudes have changed towards sustainability being incorporated into a building from the very beginning. Um, since you've founded WOHA, have you found that there has been a gradual appreciation for that or has it really not much, not changed much at all? Oh, no, there's been a huge <coughs> change, which is fantastic. Uh, when we started in the early 90s, it was really off everybody's radar. So we always at that point said we had to sort of smuggle it in through the back door. We would frame a strategy as a um, lifestyle uh, improvement. Um, uh, uh, you know, say, so, oh, you could have it all naturally ventilated. That's much nicer, you know, to have the fresh air. Um, and and, and I mean, it's where we actually sort of honed our skills in <laughs> convincing people uh, to do these things without even realising they were doing it. Um, so now we find it obviously a lot uh, easier because there's a common understanding that this is quite an urgent um, need. Uh, and so now it's more a matter of, of how and what does it cost, whether, rather than whether it should be done at all. Mm. Yeah. That's good to hear. But I think it's still, I mean, it's still so slow, though, because you think, I mean, we've now been practising, well, I've been in Singapore for almost a third of a century, mm. and I would say it hasn't advanced that much in that time, and then everyone's talking about what happens by the end of the century, which now I'm this old doesn't seem like much time and every building cycle is like 10 years you know? mm. so if you're talking about 2050 it's maybe three building cycles end to end mm. and uh, I don't think each cycle is advancing fast enough to be able to do what we need to do in order to save ourselves. Hmm. Well that prompts me to ask you how, op how optimistic you are about the future <laughs> then because I have my thoughts but <laughs> Do you, do you feel like we will be able to design ourselves out of this situation? Uh, what worries me, I think, is our human timescale versus planetary systems are not very well meshed. And I think people's understanding of tipping points and um, interlinked complex systems are very poor as well. Um, so what I worry is we may already have passed a tipping point, you know, where there's, um, we enter a, a vicious cycle. Um, uh, and uh, so even if all the laggards who need so much convincing are finally convinced, it will be too late. And then, um, and then I think the danger is if stuff gets disrupted too much, um, there's not going to be um, the economy or political will to make massive changes, it will start being very reactive, you know, to disease or famine or uh, rising sea levels. So it'll, everyone will be so distracted with ongoing series of disasters that there will be no great coordinated movement. Um, so I do really think it's very urgent. I think the level of education is still very poor. I think people's understanding of 
how systems can collapse. I mean, everyone has, like the entire human history has been in the Holocene period, which is a very stable, benign climate. Uh, but, you know, the geological record shows, even, you know, within the Aboriginal history, ice ages, sea levels rising by 30 metres, this sort of thing. I mean, this is uh, stuff that was happening slowly over long periods, but was incredibly disruptive, or the timescales we're talking about. <laughs> you know, it could be disastrous. So I call myself a very hopeful pessimist. <laughs> I, I like think that. <laughs> we need a hopeful frame of mind yeah. in order to act positively towards a better future. But deep down, I'm really pessimistic because I just don't see the buy-in at mm. a sufficient gut level of, of you know, panic. <laughs> mm. Because I think people's understanding of time and the way these things work is completely wrong. Yeah. Well, that actually leads me quite nicely to my next question, which is, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in now in, I don't want to say the middle of the pandemic, because I was saying that in June and it's, it's not <laughs> over yet. So in the midst of a pandemic, do you think that because we are all so caught up and, and reacting to what we're going through right now, that, that the climate crisis has almost sort of been shelved or forgotten about or has become less urgent? Uh, Yes, and I do think the the sort of the vaccine story is probably the wrong lesson for everyone to learn. I think before when there was no vaccine and people were learning to work together to solve a problem by changing behaviours was a really good lesson. I think the kind of... Um, the American approach is like carry on as usual while disaster collapses around you and then have the hero ride in with the vaccine. Uh, and so sort of technology saving you at the last minute is a really bad lesson, I think. Because, mm. uh, you know, if you heat up your oceans, there's nothing you can do to turn that off. It'll be like if it took 300 years of industrial revolution to cause the problem, you're not going to be able to solve it in a, until another 300 years probably mm. and during that time it will be pretty uh, unpleasant <laughs> for all concerned mm. so yeah I think um, if we can remember the everybody working together the importance of um, uh, our behaviour as a society uh, as a civilization, I think that's a really important lesson to learn and I think the way that people realise you can actually make a lot of very, um, uh, in a way, severe changes in a very rapid period of time and people can adapt. And in fact, many people <laughs> like appreciate the shake-up and the chance to sort of re-engineer their lives or re-engineer society. So I think um, you know, th there could be good things that come out of COVID. Uh, it depends where you look and which lessons you draw from it. <laughs> mm, it's a really good way of putting it, actually. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but you're right. I, I think it's probably one of the first times that I've felt maybe in my lifetime where the whole world is kind of on the same page to some degree. Some are still in denial <laughs> and there are cons conspiracy theories that abound. But, yeah, working together as humanity potentially could be what saves us. But yes, yeah, and it has to be that. It has to be a sort of political will because we also see that when people get told what to do or told they can't do something, they get really um, angry about it. And that's where I'm probably the hopeful pessimist because I, I feel like um, most of 
the strategies for the future are sort of framed as you won't be able to do this anymore and you can't do that. And I think it's it's wrong to say to see it like that. I think it's just to say let's design ourselves a life that suits our resources on this planet and let's make that life fantastic. Mm. It might not be the same in all respects, but it might have, you know, amazing new experiences. I mean like a uh, an airship trip, for instance. So maybe we're all drifting around in giant helium balloons, <laughs> slowly looking down at the Earth. It's different from zapping somewhere on a jet, but in the end, it's it's you know going to be an amazing holiday. Mm. And uh, I think um, so. That's where I think it's like it should be seen as a a different place, this future that we go to. Mm. And we can maybe dump a lot of the things about this life that we find really stressful and unpleasant (laughs) (laughs) on the way there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed. Um, So obviously during this year, throughout the pandemic, we've all spent quite a a considerable amount of extra time at home than what we normally would. Uh, And I know that you don't only design residential buildings, but you have done in the past. So I I wanted to hear from you what you think uh, the bare necessities are for a residential space, because, you know, I I live in a city where that is not even a consideration. A bedroom fitting a bed is a luxury, not a necessity, Um, in some people's opinions, not mine. But I would love to hear from you what, what you think the sort of bare necessities are for supporting yeah people throughout their lives yeah i think uh i think simple and resilient design is really good uh so you know just something as simple as being able to open your window for fresh air i think in the pandemic that's taken on a whole new um sort of flavor because uh you know then that the air you're breathing is you know, diluted and hasn't come straight out of someone else's mouth. If it's issuing out of a vent in the wall, there's a profound anxiety, I think, about where that air's been <laughs> and what's uh, what it contains. Um, and so I think in many ways something like our, our public housing project Skyville at Dawson, uh, which is a, a big building and it's got 960 apartments, but it's also very, very simple. So there's no internal corridors. Uh, you, you walk from the lift to your apartment through an open air space that looks into a garden. Uh, your apartment itself functions very well without even air conditioning. Uh, and so I think in some ways like a reduction in complexity and an increase in simplicity um, is, is something that's maybe to be aspired uh, too. Um, I think also, like you say, having sufficient space is really important. And uh, in, in many ways, I think this restriction on space uh, is an artificial construct that's very tied up with economics and planning regulations and uh, financing. Uh, but there's no real limit to it. You know, if you, if you made every building... Uh, plot ratio increased by 20%, uh, you know, the same number of people would be on the same street. It wouldn't really affect the city that much. There'd be a bit more volume, maybe, in the city. 
Um, so I think minimum standards set by government is probably the only way to deal with that um, because then it's a, a question of um, affordability, uh, but that's also set by uh, the economics of the city. Um, so I think, yeah, it's important, I think, to unpick that that death spiral towards the world's most tiny and expensive apartment yeah. that many, <laughs> many cities are in. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's totally, you know, it's a totally human construct. Uh, and so it's totally within our power to unpick it. Mm. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they seem to be able to do it in Scandinavia, but, you know... Obviously. Well, in Singapore too. I mean, the public housing in Singapore is much more spacious than the private housing and much more affordable and often side by side mm. with it. So I think there you can actually see there's like two sets of policy and planning regulation that have very different outcomes mm. where a bigger apartment right next door to a smaller apartment could be half the price. Mm. So the project that you just referenced before, the Sky Villa at Dawson, is a public housing yes, project? Yes, it's an HDV project in yeah. Singapore. The Which housing development board. I think yep. is remarkable that you know the access to outdoor space and fresh air is something that many people don't have in private housing. So yes, and that one has. I mean, every every ten floors, there's a sky garden that eighty homes belong to. So in the pandemic, it's also quite interesting because you know if you had some sort of really severe lockdown, you could actually separate those sky villages, we call them, into mm. 80 homes, but they would still be able to exercise, walk their dog, uh, get outside without even having to enter the city at large. So I think there's um, some interesting pandemic uh, aspects of, of, of the design, which we didn't foresee for that reason, but mm. they were basic sort of... Um, the basics, really, about human experience and what we think people really like and want. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, that it, it, it seemed to answer the demands of the pandemic very well, too. Mm, indeed. I want to go back to talking about um, a more macro scale, the city, and a phrase that I quite like, which is civic generosity. And I, I would love to hear what your definition of that is. And you know, which cities do that well and perhaps others that don't do it so well? Yes. Uh, so we came up with in our book a series of measures which we were using to counteract um, these other measures that were being forced on us through economics and planning policy and things. So, um, so we had five of them, but Civic Generosity Index was one of them. And it was the degree to which a development facilitates the public life of a city. Um, and it was really through thinking about what was happening to cities through um, sort of late capitalism. Um, and we could see sort of every developer would choose a good site. And the reason it was a good site was because it was taking a whole lot of stuff from the city, like great transport, uh, access to public amenities, but it was just take, 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 and we thought this isn't right. You know, this is why people don't like density, and they don't like big cities, is because it's like more and more people are trying to get their hands on a fixed and limited set of public goods. So we thought, why can't we? You know, if we can make a thousand apartments, why can't we also make a new park, or possibly a childcare centre, or a school? 
Um, and so that's where we thought we should measure how good our buildings are as if they were citizens in a city. Uh, because if every person in a city is a lovely, generous, giving person, you're going to be in a great community. And if everybody is this nasty, grasping asshole, uh, <laughs> then it will be a horrible place to live. And it seemed to us that the buildings were nasty, grasping assholes. <laughs> and That's a great way cumulative, <laughs> you know, cumulatively, what are we building? Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, I think many societies have this uh, attitude. You know, I think the Scandinavian societies um, see public good and um, civility as, as something to, um, that is a shared characteristic. Uh, I think even uh, in Australia where we've done some projects, um, the discussion around the public realm with, with large projects is something that's very active mm. and also found a common understanding between developers and um, planners, you know, that this was something everyone aspired to. Mm. Uh, but not so much in Singapore, I would say. It was very much like a parcel of land. You just squeeze the maximum juice out of it. And <laughs> definitely Hong Kong, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think um, I th that's why we thought it would be interesting to rate it because I think it would start becoming shameful for a developer if every time they got a zero score for civic generosity, mm. they're basically being labelled with their with their true character. Right, how nasty they are. <laughs> so do you think that there is definitely a role again there with governments to kind of create and enforce policy that buildings have to give back in some way to their neighbourhoods or to their cities? Is that the only way to ensure that this happens more regularly than it actually currently is? I think so. And I thought I actually, uh, in Brisbane where we're doing some work, I was talking to the, the city planners as well. And, so, you know, it could be a carrot or a stick, um, but measuring it, it's really important, I think. So the carrot might be that you become a kind of, um, you know, like most favoured developer sort of category where you're maybe given more leeway on the, the trade-offs you make. You know, maybe you get a higher plot ratio or because you have built a track record of projects which really contributed to the public realm. So then you're sort of branded as a trustworthy and... Um, conscientious developer while someone who's a sort of fly-by-night and abuses the rules would you know be uh, given much less leeway and the statements that they make about their project would maybe not be trusted you know so they would then um, come under very serious scrutiny or, or not be given any uh, you know plot ratio bonuses and things. Mm, that's an interesting idea. Um, so, away from the city and talking maybe a bit about architecture on a broader scale because you not only practice architecture, you also have um, quite a, a burgeoning art practice, whether burgeoning is the right word or not, I don't know, but um, as well as the product design sort of part of WOHA. I'd love to hear how important you think it is for architects to have interests that lie beyond architecture. Is it is it an essential part of what you do to sort of be aware and to be passionate about other things other than architecture? Yes, I do think it's really important because I, I think um, we're in a world dominated by specialists and architects are one of the really rare professions where we have to be a sort of jack of all trades or a generalist. So we need to know 
a little about a lot of things in order to be able to orchestrate all these specialists in a way that all their contributions are meaningful to a bigger picture. Um, and I think unless you are very much a, a, a sort of generalist or a polymath and you are naturally interested in many, many things, I think it's quite easy to become very um, inward looking and, and create architecture that's only for other architects um, and um, is, won't be popular or appealing because it maybe just actually doesn't function very well from many different criteria. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, the, the culture of architecture is also very interesting, but I think in much of the 20th century it became purely a focus on form uh, and what technology could contribute to form, uh, and which I think is fantastic, but it's not the only thing architecture is about. Uh, and I think what we're seeing, you know, is that in many ways these um, very formally expressive buildings are uh, quite poor performers from other aspects. Uh, so I think if you go back to sort of the Vitruvian, um, uh, what's it called, a triumvirate or something, <laughs> the commodity firmness and delight, uh, I think, you know, too often delight becomes the sole criteria uh, and commodity and firmness are ignored. I think we've been very interested in in the first two maybe, like is it commodious for all the end users um, and does it make sense, you know, in terms of firmness, does it, is it a really solid proposal from many different criteria? Um, and, and for that reason, I think many people weren't so interested in what we were doing because um, I would say we p always put form in the service of the other two rather than um, uh, making it so innovative from a form point of view. Mm. That's interesting. I'm sure that, that those opinions would have changed, though. I think they have. I think, I mean, when Kampong Admiralty got Building of the Year, I think that marked a real shift in a sort of the conversation coming back towards um, yeah, other aspects of building, like social aspects, community aspects, uh, environmental. But really, I think environment is a subset of community. Uh, you know, if you think of ourselves as in a community of not just humans, but all the creatures and life on this planet, um, that is really um, the most important. And the way we get there is via sustainability. Mm. But there's nothing very interesting or appealing about sustainability on its own. It's <laughs> an interesting way of putting it. Um, so I want to go back to your art practice and hear a little bit about what you're up to. Oh, yes, I forgot that. <laughs> that was the <laughs> point of the question. No, no, it, it wasn't <coughs> entirely. Um, but I'm, I'm also curious to hear how you sort of view the role of your art practice within your life and whether what comes out of that exploration and experimentation, whether that feeds into the architecture and whether they're both sort of influencing each other? Yes. Well, for me, I was interested in art first before architecture. Um, and then, but it always seemed something that every time I tried to make it a, a career move, I didn't enjoy it anymore. So it became a really my, um, uh, I shouldn't call it a hobby because that sounds sort of... Uh, 
sort of denigrates it a bit. But really an intellectual pursuit that then I didn't have to justify to anyone. And I think architecture is always about justifying what you're doing to everybody. Like <laughs> It just never stops the number of people you have to uh, justify every move to. So I really enjoyed it from that point of view as a creative outlet that was mine alone. And uh, it didn't have to um, deliver on anything or by any particular time. Yeah, so, but what's been really strange lately is my art practice, uh, which used to be, you know, quite wide-ranging in terms of um, subject matter and things, but I got very interested in um, uh, sort of new geometries from the late 20th century and uh, exploring them through pattern-making and tessellations. Um, and through a whole kind of weird set of, or not weird, I guess it's the way my brain's wired, all kinds of interests suddenly became very close to each other. Um, so interest in sustainability moved into interest in um, systems, my interest in, in, my interest in nature into ecosystems, uh, the tiling are really like complex systems, uh, and then uh, as sort of reading through all these things, people like Gregory Bateson, um, who um, is a scientist from um, mid 20th century, early to mid, um, who uh, actually was married to Margaret Mead, who uh, were in Bali, and that's so this the Balinese art I was interested in when we were doing projects there, and uh, ended up some collecting pieces which turned out to have belonged to Gregory Bateson, uh, who, um, uh, you know, was one of the uh, original people to sort of conceptualise ecosystems and things as well. So uh, I don't know. It's like all these different strands of things I was interested in separately have recently intertwined. Uh, and uh, threw up sort of interesting viewpoints on each other. So the art's become part of that, and I'm not sure whether I'm pleased about that or not, because <laughs> <laughs> now it's one big tangled intellectual <laughs> edifice which uh, I have no escape from. Wow. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, surely it's, in, it's enjoyable in its own way. Um, it is, I think, and it's... Uh, I sort of... Um, or sometimes I think I'm like one of these crazy people that says everything's connected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in a way, everything I've been interested in is the science of why everything's connected. Uh, and so I, I find it... Um, uh, it's like I've... I guess at, at my age now, I feel like I have a certain understanding of the world through this viewpoint, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and it also positions our architectural practice in a way that makes a lot of sense to me and that I feel is right and correct. <laughs> uh, and so for that point of view, it's quite satisfying. Like, I feel like if I, if I died tomorrow, I wouldn't be saying, what's it all for? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be saying, I kind, of get, like, a, kind of get a way of why everything's the way it is oh, and what, wow. I, what my part in it is. <laughs> That's a very enlightened position to be in. Um, so have you had any extra time this year? We were talking before we started recording that, you know, obviously we haven't been travelling. Um, so with, with that, I assume, some extra time has been freed up. Have you been able to dedicate that to art or have you been finding other pursuits aside from...? 
Ah, some work. of it, but I actually used to do a lot when I travelled for work on planes and things. So <laughs> I've actually lost that time where I wasn't contactable. <laughs> uh, but I know I had different periods. It was quite strange the lockdown. You know, at some point you felt very productive and you could do all sorts of things, and then other times it just felt all too hard, and you just wanted to watch Netflix and <laughs> yep. lie on the couch. <laughs> so it's. Uh, but I did have periods of, of sort of, uh, yeah, I think well, some of that connections, you know, were because of books I'd been meaning to read for a long time. And then as I read them, they were all cross-referencing each other. And, you know, then I was uh, with, the, with the art too, saying, oh, you know, that thing I've been working on is kind of like a really great illustration of that concept I'm reading in that book. So mm. it was, I had a... A few periods when I thought, ah, oh, you know, this is uh, the theory of everything. Uh, and then, you know, three days later, I'd be watching, uh, you know, Love Island Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I can't bring myself to watch that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, I think we've all gone through those phases this year for sure. <laughs> and how was the transition here? I mean, with such a large team, did you feel that it was sort of smooth having everyone working from home during the circuit breaker time or was, you know, I imagine there must have been a few hiccups or... Yeah, well, that bumps. was... I think that was a really um, rewarding part of the year. Uh, we'd already sort of had flexi time in our office and had, you know, realised that with with a, a team in a creative enterprise like we have, actually people are quite self-driven because of their interest in the projects uh, but it was still really shocking to just you know send everybody home <laughs> and uh, and it, we didn't get much warning and um, of course as a as a principal of the firm you're wondering is anyone going to do anything <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so it was and I think I mean that's where I think the experience of COVID was fantastic because um Yes, we could trust everybody. They were all fantastic. And, uh, um, you know, it was really stressful and disturbing for everybody to have, have their daily life upended. Um, and everybody did their utmost to solve problems and uh, uh, share information. And so it's another sort of things that bring a tear to my eye, really, was to s just to see how great everybody was. Um, and, you know, immediately that's where I think catapults us to this different future because we're now saying, well, now coming into the office is really a choice that we can make. We can design the way we want to work in future with nobody in the office or some people in the office or maybe we, you know, have a um, project war room where people get together for intense periods and then can go off home. So. We're still trying to figure that out, but I think that's the really sort of creative destruction of the um, the COVID changes. Is um, yeah, suddenly you're released from convention <laughs> and can decide how you want to do it quite freely. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, so my last question is: I read somewhere, I think, or heard that you guys had a garden on the rooftop here how's that been going this year has it been slightly neglected because you're not around as much or has it become a bit more of a passion project it has in fact several of our projects like oasia had a um 
uh, some problems with their articulation system. So it became really like people at home with their hair, you know, where people were sort of long hair and all going grey at the roots. So Oasia was sort of all long haired <laughs> with some dead bits and bald patches and things. So uh, and our same with our little garden here. Um, it was also neglected a bit. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what's interesting are plants, um, if anything, they go more crazy, sort of the less uh, care they're getting. So it was, it was quite overgrown um, and full of birds and things because uh, uh, no one was picking the vegetables, so they all went uh. to seed. Uh, but uh, quite fast to tidy it all up again. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was interesting in Singapore, though, that was another big cultural shift was because none of the manicured gardens and verges were touched for um, sort of April through to July, um, it was filled with insects and birds and lizards. And, and very interestingly, people stopped saying, um, you know, why is this looking unkempt? Everyone started saying, why? Are we cutting it all down? It's so beautiful to see all these butterflies and birds and things. So it's been an immediate shift where end parks are saying, great, we'll leave a lot of areas more wild. I think they're experimenting with sort of meadows versus lawns. Um, so, you know, it was a, another sort of overnight cultural shift where previously, you know, someone complained, they would jump on it. Uh, and now there's a lot of voices sort of uh, advocating for it to be um, more wild and more natural. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah, there's been so many stories um, in Hong Kong, and I guess it goes back to what you were saying before about the interconnectedness of things, but just clearly how in tune um, the you know wildlife and fauna is to the presence of humans that so quickly they realised we weren't around and kind of returned to areas that... I mean, we were seeing wild boar in the centre of like Hong Kong's financial district, and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, well, there's, uh, we had a family of otters go through little India. Really? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know there were otters in Singapore. That's, that's really quite cute. <laughs> <laughs> They're sort of lounging in the five-foot way and splashing in a puddle at a busy intersection which was completely empty. Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing and good to see that hopefully uh, the lack of human presence can very quickly create some change in the natural world. Yeah, and I think that also gives people hope that if you, you know, people, some people say, oh, you know, what's the point in urban greenery? But um, I think if you, if you build it, you know, they really will come, <laughs> and Clearly. very quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's quite amazing. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I could sit and talk to you all afternoon, but I'm sure you've got more important things to do, so... Um, yeah, thank you. It's, it's been great chatting. It's always a pleasure, Susie, and uh, Thanks, great Richard. to have you here. Yes, it's good <laughs> to be back. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.